Hello. Hi. I'm Shannon. I'm Emma. And welcome to this podcast doesn't exist. What do we got today? Well, Emma, buckle up. Dink, dink. <laughs> Shakespeare. Yes. You know him. I do. You love him. I kind of do. Or you hate him, oh. depending who you are. The king of chaotic bisexual energy, yes. if ever there was we, one. Well, we, we knew that. <laughs> you probably enjoyed some of his greatest hits, Emma. She's the Man. Yes. The Lion King. Yes. West Side Story. Yes. The list goes on and on. But Shannon, you say. But Shannon. Those were all written by different people, not by Shakespeare himself. Am I supposed to repeat you? No, you don't have to. <laughs> and that, dear listeners, or maybe just Emma and, our, just, just and our moms. Hi, Mom. Yeah. Hi, Mom. Uh, is the question on the table for today's discussion. Shakespeare. One genius mind or the product of the best group project ever? Ooh, dude, group projects were the worst thing on the planet. Yeah, no conspiracy there. We hate it. No. All right. So the mostly agreed upon facts. I say mostly because Elizabethan England record keeping was not essential if Fair you enough. were not a royal person. Fair they enough. Didn't really care. Yeah. So. The man we know as William Shakespeare was born to an illiterate glove maker in the town of Stratford-upon-Avon in 1564. So long ago. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, last Thursday seems a long time ago. This so. year is just so long. Uh, but he became an actor and a playwright and toured with his merry band of men. Basically... He was an Elizabethan rock star. Yes. I mean, have you seen Shakespeare in Love? Yes, I have. It Queen, is a wonderful movie. <laughs> Queen Elizabeth was a tough broad, but she had a soft spot for good storytelling. So she loved it. We loved it. Good. And uh, we're doing real, real shortened, abbreviated, agreed upon okay. facts because we have a lot to get into. I'm good with uh, that. So he's, an, he's a rock star. He's writing stuff. He's performing stuff. Cut to 1616, he dies, depending on who you believe, which records you believe, either three days short of his 53rd birthday or on his 53rd birthday. Yeah, I had an English teacher in high school who was like, he died on his birthday. And I was like, all right. But, you know, R.I.P. Yeah. And most of his works, his plays, his sonnets, etc., were collected into the first folio, which was published in 1623. So seven years after his death. Yeah. Conspiracy. Woo! Um, several articles, which sources will be listed in the show notes, but several articles posit that it was just casual and normal for authorship to be either questioned or unknown in Elizabethan times, um, which I just found really funny. Like, imagine if that were true nowadays. Like... I'm really enjoying this new happy, sad novel about teenagers having formative experiences. Might be John of the House of Green, but who knows? <laughs> Just like, <laughs> you know, it's casual. So famous contrarians, so people who really don't think Shakespeare was Shakespeare. Okay. Include Sigmund Freud. I think I knew that one. Charlie Chaplin. Oh. Malcolm X. Oh. Helen Keller. A what? Mark Twain. Okay. Orson Welles. Okay. Walt Whitman. As well as SCOTUS justices, so Supreme Court justices, O'Connor, Scalia, and Stevens. Okay. And they actually, in, I believe it was the mid-90s, had sort of a mock trial. Like, they put Shakespeare on trial for SCOTUS, and they said that Shakespeare was Shakespeare. But... Some of them didn't believe this. Mm. Um, and then I'm going to read you a quote from okay. The Atlantic. So their doubt, so contrarians, is rooted in an empirical conundrum. Shakespeare's life is remarkably well documented by the standards of the period. Yet no records from his lifetime identify him unequivocally as a writer. The more than 70 documents that exist show him as an actor, 
a shareholder in a theater company, a money lender, and a property investor. But none of them say, you know, I, Bill Smith, pay one William Shakespeare of Stratford-upon-Avon for his poems or anything like that. So interesting. But also with the posit that record-keeping wasn't as big of a deal back then. Okay. So weigh those two as you will. So Wikipedia... Our beloved mother source yes. lists 87 possible contenders for the quote-unquote real Shakespeare. Jeez. Don't 87? worry. Don't worry. We're not getting at all of them. Just the big ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, I have a few honorable mentions that I think are either interesting or weird or just funny. I'm so going to get. We're going to go through those real quick. Um, up first, with, uh, under the qualification of funny... William Butts, a patron of literature proposed by Walter Conrad Arensberg in 1929. Okay. Um, oh, I scrolled too far in my notes. Okay. Uh, Miguel de Cervantes. I can't say things Fancy. right. Fancy. Uh, Spanish novelist of okay. Don Quixote. Uh, he was a poet as well and a playwright. And this was proposed by Carlos Fuentes in 1976 also died in 1616 so the same year as Shakespeare Um, another notable contender uh, Daniel Defoe who was a novelist he wrote Robinson Crusoe and this was proposed by George Magruder Beatty no year given Um, but here's the problem Daniel Defoe wasn't born till 1660 uh so many decades after shakespeare died yeah Alrighty, and then we have sir francis drake a naval commander adventurer which also what a job title right <laughs> just put that in my resume line right adventurer adventurer my lower third uh proposed in 1940 by dr wm cunningham and um dr wm cunningham also proposes that Sir Francis Drake was a member of the Freemasons. Everyone mark your card, your bingo card. Um, Sir Thomas More is also a proposed candidate who is also a Freemason. Yes. Another contender, Queen Elizabeth I herself. Yes, Queen. It was proposed anonymously in 1857, and it was re-proposed by several people in 1913 and 1956, respectively. Okay. I personally kind of love the idea of Queen Elizabeth being a boss queen and just writing all this stuff herself and then finding some, like, poor himbo actor to be her beard. Like, her literary beard. I really love that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, she was a boss. She refused to get married. She, like, didn't want to have kids. God's, like, Godspeed. But... I don't know if the evidence is really there. But um, similarly, James the sixth slash first king of Scotland yes. and England uh, was proposed by Malcolm X as the real Shakespeare in 1965. Which is just choice. <laughs> which is a sentence I never thought I would say. Right. Lots of connected things. Those, that's the end of the notable slash interesting list of contenders. Okay. Um, but additional theories and candidates had been presented as early as 1856 and as recently as 2019. Okay. And actually, even before Shakespeare's death, there were people who were questioning the legitimacy of his authorship. Um, Yeah. Shade was being thrown. Um, In 1592, dramatist Robert Greene, on his deathbed, warns fellow playwrights about Quote, an upstart crow beautified with our feathers. So crows in, like, folklore and other, like, legends of the time were portrayed as plagiarists, as stealing fancy feathers from other birds and making themselves pretty because they're thieves. So just interesting. And there was a there was a TV show um, a while ago. I don't know if it's still going on, but it was called Upstart Crow, and it was about Shakespeare. But it was like a comedy show. Oh, it was it was supposedly very good. My parents watched it. and My mother told me about it, but they genuinely don't like you know them. The way that they watch television is like 
it's go on in the background. Sometimes they're actually paying attention to it, but uh, they said it was funny, so I believe them. All right, well, write in if you actually watched it. I think Stephanie watched it too, but yeah, Steph, tell us. Friends of the show. Mm. Alrighty, so I'm here's a quote from the Washington Post for you. Behind every one of these claims is the assumption that only an aristocrat could have composed the immortal words of Hamlet or written with such precision about Italy or divulged the thoughts of kings and queens. Here's my first thought on that. (laughs) Eat the rich. That's some classist BS. It also doesn't make... You can put words in the mouth of anybody. And you can pretend that you know what those words might be. And, like, I could pretend to talk like the queen. Sure. And I might get away with it. Um, Plug for my favorite show of all time, The West Wing. Aaron Sorkin has never been president of the United States, but his president is very emotional and informed and well-rounded. You know, writing like it is a human. You know. Um, Some people claim that the reason that Shakespeare is able to speak to these high-level ways of living with such accuracy is actually because of events in his past lives. Whoa. So, everyone, mark your your bingo card for ghosts or spirits. Past lives. Didn't think we were going to do that. I did not know we were going here. Well, well, there's more that you don't know that we're getting to. I'm excited. Here we go. Um, Some pro-Shakespeare scholars proposed that perhaps Shakespeare joined the military and or became a tutor. And that is how he got to travel through the world and gain experiences that would help him to... Why he would know what Verona looked like. Exactly, yes. But my one concession to the contrarians is that why would such a prolific writer not have composed poetry or letters or anything any record of that period of his life that's fair you know what i mean yeah like maybe he sent them to his wife and she ended up burning them for fuel i don't know maybe that's if i could time travel on a tangent if i could time travel i would go back and if i had an assurance that like in doing this i wouldn't ruin the world but i would just stop every historical figure who like their wife or their brother like burned all their letters i'd be like stop don't do it like i just want you know i just want to know slap anne hathaway i know his wife not the actress (laughs) yes um alrighty so here's another quote this one's from a site called inside hook and as i mentioned previously on this show um my liberal arts college honor code has just put the fear of plagiarism deep in my heart. So I'm just, they said it so well that I can't just paraphrase it for you. Okay. So as quote, the reality is that most of the evidence given by anti Stratfordians, contrarians is easier for me to say, but that's how they said is either cherry picked or incorrect. For example, much is made of the fact that Shakespeare never left England, yet his plays featured the geography of Europe. Hint, maps existed. (laughs) Less mentioned is the fact that Shakespeare made basic geographical errors, such as claiming Bohemia, modern Czech Republic, had a coastline. It may be hard to imagine a commoner wrote such brilliant plays, but it's harder to imagine how this conspiracy would have actually worked in practice. The real Shakespeare was undisputedly a famous actor who was involved in the small and gossipy London theater world. He knew and worked with other famous playwrights and actors. He was involved in the productions. He collaborated with other writers. If he was a fraud, especially an illiterate and uneducated one, wouldn't everyone have known it? Which I feel like just sums it up so well before we're even getting into the major contenders in that. There are some people who claim Shakespeare didn't even exist, which I'm like, that's a bit much. uh, Maybe if you feel he he didn't write everything that he claimed to, but people were talking about him on their deathbeds. Yeah. And that's recorded fact. Yeah. And and if we have records of, like, his birthplace and his marriage and all that. Like, we know that he is a person existed in some capacity. Yes. And there are many contemporary... 
um, records from that time, whether it's writings or between letters between folks, allusions to Shakespeare and his social climbing ways. Like he, his family did eventually um, earn or was gifted a coat of arms, which is very significant socially during that time. So I just, the level of conspiracy that would have to exist for Shakespeare to not truly exist is mind-boggling because yeah. the crown would be involved like so many There would be things. too many things going on at the at like in the 1600s. Yes. Like late 1500s that would need a lot of people to be really on top of their game. Yes, truly. So <laughs> I can't I agree. I don't think that 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 could possibly I believe at the minimum, we should all agree that there was a human man who lived at one time who went by the name of William Shakespeare. Agreed. I think we should I'm all just not question that. I'm good agreeing with that. All right. So, main contender number one. We have Sir Francis Bacon. <gasps> Mr. Bacon. <laughs> not to be confused with Kevin. Um, I'm going to start you off with a short quote from the Francis Bacon Society website. Ooh. The authorship question may or may not be settled by reasoning about facts, but this is not the important point for Baconians. So even the people who feel that he might have been the real Shakespeare aren't willing to debate about the facts. Like, they don't care that much. That's so weird. <laughs> Which made me kind of hesitant to even really go into it that much, but... Here we go. So he described himself in letters to his contemporaries as a concealed poet. Okay. Because during that time, poetry was seen as very frivolous and plays were especially seen as lower class because the play, the locations where they were taking place were just dirty. There were scandalous things happening, gambling, prostitution, all sorts of lowly things. So fancy people with sir in their name, their title, should not have bothered with those things. No consortium with the peasants. Yes. Um, ba -ba -ba -ba. In 1615, so Shakespeare's still alive, um, there's a publication which mentions Sir Francis Bacon in the company of several poets, including Willie Shakespeare. Did they call him Willie? Uh, W-I-L-L-I. Yes. They call him Willie. Willie. So it shows, you know, they were both still alive. And this is important proof because it does indicate that Sir Francis Bacon was on the same artistic level as Shakespeare and these okay. other well-known established writers and poets. Fascinating. Okay. Then we just got into some really weird stuff that I, in the depths of the night when I was researching, just <laughs> could not buy into. I'm I couldn't. excited. So one of the pieces of evidence that's presented by Baconians is that there's an engraving that shows one figure dressed like a scholar, assumed to be Bacon, okay. being raised out of a well, like rescued out of a well, uh, and another dressed like an actor, meant to be Shakespeare, uh, to be falling off of a high rock. Where is this? No clue? My my note underneath that description is, I don't know, it all feels very Da Vinci Code to me. Yeah. So, <laughs> but then we get, it gets more. Oh, it gets okay. more National Treasure-ish. Separately, there's a cipher. Okay. Whose origins, I could not, there were so many paragraphs, I could not, my professors would be disappointed. I did not fully execute the research. But when you take this cipher to Shakespeare's burial monument in Stratford, it and you arrange the letters that are listed on that monument, supposedly the message that is disclosed is Francis Bacon author. That's it? Yes. But then when you go to the Westminster Abbey version, it enciphers Francis Bacon using very odd spelling mistakes. And certain things grammatically that are just very weird and wrong. Like putting the letter N in a word that does not have the letter N whatsoever. So that was a little suspicious to me. Okay. Um, however, 
I feel that this is a Jesus in your toast situation. Yeah. Like, if you are looking, looking for, for something, you will find a way to make it work. My parents have a uh, bread stamp with the Virgin Mary on it. <laughs> a built-in and, miracle. Yeah. I, I don't remember why they have it, but it's in the drawer with all of, like, the measuring cups and stuff. And so if you do anything, like, bake anything in their house, you open it, and it's just the Virgin Mary looking up at you. And you're like, oh, hi. <laughs> It's true. God does want me to eat carbs. Yep. So that's kind of the case for Sir Francis Bacon. Okay. There are some more pieces of quote-unquote evidence. Uh, They're available on the Francis Bacon Society website if anyone is curious. Uh, I personally was not especially convinced. It all felt very national treasure to me. Very this, pieced this together, yeah. cherry-picked, like that earlier quote was saying. Yeah. This this little piece is going to hook to this little piece, and then we all figure it out. And yes. It says it kind of. And yes. Okay. So the next candidate we have is Edward de Vere, the Earl of Oxford. Yes. And as I mentioned before, same thing applies to him even more so because he's an earl. Poetry is frivolous. Plays are dirty. Not about it. Um, Dirty plays. So the the first piece of evidence that they present, um, scholars present, this one is more pieced together research. It's not specifically from a society or a publication, uh, is the poem Venus and Adonis. Shout out to Tony Lilly, because I studied this in his, his gender studies class in college. Oh. So this is the first poem that is published under the name Shakespeare. Okay. And in this poem, Adonis is described as wearing a bonnet. And what's interesting about that is that there is only one painting in the historical record that depicts Adonis wearing such a garment. Because this is a well-known piece of mythology. It's depicted in lots of classical art. Um, But the only painting that Adonis is wearing a bonnet sort of head covering is displayed in Venice, where dear old Eddie, Earl of Oxford, had studied abroad. So people indicate, oh, he got to see that painting and that influenced his description of this Greek, Greek, probably Greek hero. Interesting. Yeah. Bonnet meaning what? Like head covering okay so not what, turban but no like what you're thinking of probably not like in a paisley print like little house on the prairie but <laughs> we'll look it up i'll try and include it in the in the instagram for this post the next piece that they offer is that ovid's metamorphosis um which is recognized as one of shakespeare's very influential sources um, second only to the Bible, because mm. the Bible is inspo for a lot of people. Uh, it was trans- uh, it's translated into English by Arthur Golding, who is the du- Earl of Oxford's uncle. So they oh. were living in the same household when this piece, when Metamorphosis, was translated into English. So that's another okay. thing they indicate that a- he kind of would have had first dibs to this translation, to this knowledge. The next thing that I found notable is that the character of Polonius in Hamlet, so the, you know, full of hot air, never shuts up, advisor to the king. um, Father of Ophelia? Yes, correct. um, And of Laertes. um, Is inspired by the real life person of William Cecil, Lord Burgley. Pardon me, everyone. Um, so this William Cecil, Cecil, I really want to say I'm gonna, Cecil, I'm but I'm gonna let you say whatever. You know, you think I right. You think I would have looked it up, but you know, you have other fine. things to look up. You can just shout at your car, at your. I almost said your iPod. No one has an iPod anymore. You can shout <laughs> at your listening device if I'm incorrect. Feel right free. in, right in with a correction. Um, but so William Cecil was Oxford's guardian first. Okay. And then his father-in-law. Oh, so Polonius. Yes. Okay. It was tense. Oh. Like, at least you've never had to stab your in-laws through an heiress. Am I right? I mean, 
Just kidding. We love we love Adam's family. They're great. Adam's family. <laughs> uh, right. So that's my husband, by the way. He's a pilot. Yes. He's great. So that's an interesting little comparison. And then the real life William Cecil actually had um, like a list of advice for his household that was not released to the public until after Hamlet was produced. List of advice? Yeah, like ways to comport yourself so that you're to have a peaceful household and like a so you look good to the world. Which is what Polonius says. Like when Laertes is going to France, he lists this whole long, you know, to thine own self be true. He has that whole whole monologue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Other things related. Hamlet, the character, was captured by pirates, as was Oxford in real life. He's looking more and more promising. And then we have another quote. In the first 17 sonnets, the poet encourages the fair youth to marry and procreate. It would have been entirely presumptuous for William Shakespeare, a commoner, to write sonnets offering marital advice to a young nobleman. The sonnets make much more sense if they are seen as coming from an older nobleman to a younger one, whom the older nobleman hopes will become his son-in-law. So basically, Oxford, Earl of Oxford, our main candidate, he had children, he had a daughter, he was trying to encourage the fair youth to marry into the family. So that's what they they posit, that the first 17 sonnets are encouraging this person to join his family. an interesting way to get your son-in-law to listen to you. Look, I don't know. Dad, feel like writing anything? I mean, I'm already married, but <laughs> I'm sure Adam would really appreciate it. Well, no, I think it was more of a political thing. Because William Cecil was oh, this. Oh, to like marry so in as the, like a political. The, the grandfather-in-law of the fair youth. Never mind, Dad. <laughs> I mean, if you want to write something, Dr. K, you do it. Um, all right. The problem with the Earl of Oxford theory okay. is that he died in 1604. Ooh. Before... Macbeth, King Lear, Coriolanus, The Winter Sale, and The Tempest were written and or staged. Ooh. Yes. And people don't really have any explanation for that. I didn't see any sort of reasoning around it other than maybe like he was so prolific that he wrote them all and they just hadn't been produced yet. Hmm. And um, the Earl of Oxford is the theory that the 2011 film Anonymous is based on. If anyone was curious. It's not on Netflix. I was really looking forward to looking at it. Not as my research, but as a supplement too. But someday I'll watch it. Yeah. And it'll be interesting. We'll add it to our long, long list of our things. Our resource to watch. list. <laughs> Alrighty. And then we have another, I think, more interesting candidate. Christopher Marlowe. Yay! I know this one. Yes. So he actually only wrote four plays. But That is not a detriment to his ability. People point to the fact that literally all four of his plays, which are The Jew of Malta, Dr. Faustus, Edward II, and Tamburlaine the Great, all of four of those are still performed to this day. So four for four. Yeah. He did pretty well in his time, over 400 years later. And very few pre-Shakespearean, Elizabethan, or English plays in general were revived, if they even survived. So it's very significant for him. We're not really going to talk about his early life, because it doesn't really matter. 1584, he gets a Bachelor of Arts from Cambridge. But it almost didn't happen, because some important people thought that he was secretly a Roman Catholic. Dun, (gasps) dun, dun. How dare you? But the Privy Council steps in because he's a spy. Wait, what? Bingo. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Yeah, you didn't see that one coming. Not at all. So um, apparently throughout his college career, there were, or his university career, excuse me. His time at uni. 
there were long absences from the university and accounts that he spent a lot on food and drink at a time when he logistically did not have the income to support it. Which my slight take issue with that is it's called depression and poor decision making, my dudes. (laughs) Have you never been to college? Just saying. Um, But he does have to have cash on him at this point. True. Or rack up a tab that he's not intending to pay. Correct. Um, Also, going along with his absences from uni, he's caught with counterfeit coins in the Netherlands in 1592, but when he's sent back to England for punishment, he doesn't, nothing happens. So they're just like, yeah, people think maybe he was on a mission Mm, as a spy. And um, I just liked this, that his reputation as a drinker, a brawler, and a ladies' man makes him an Elizabethan James Bond. Ding, 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 But make it a liar. <laughs> like, what, what, is, that, is that what it's called? That, like, little harp? Yeah. Yeah. Mandolin. Let's say that. Let's make it a mandolin. You get it. Ding, 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 but with a mandolin. All right. The year is 1593. Okay. It's May. Mr. Shakes is still alive? Yes. Okay. Correct. You know, it's May. Maybe it's starting to get a little warm, but nah. Uh, the streets probably don't <laughs> smell good. It's England, so <laughs> you know. maybe, maybe not. So, Marlowe's former roommate, Thomas Kidd, gets caught with some papers that basically just say bad stuff about Jesus slash the church. Uh-oh. Maybe imply that doesn't exist. Uh-oh. God isn't real. That's not good. Not cool. Uh, so he scapegoats slash rats out Marlowe. It's a little contentious as to whether or not he actually wrote them or if Marlowe did, but either way, he blames Christopher Marlowe. And Marlowe is called before the Privy Council to face these super serious charges, a.k.a. they're punishable by death. Ooh. Dang. Yeah. Um, but before he can face the metaphorical music, murder. Murder. Supposedly, he's killed in a bar brawl. Supposedly, about the billing of a play. So, like, whose name got to be at the top and bigger and stuff. So, at this point, he's written all four of his of his plays. Yes. And while at university or, like, before university? Do we know? I believe it might have been after. Okay. I... Don't have the the years on those. Okay. But, and he was also, like, an actor as well. Yeah. So. So he's in the, he's in the zone. So people were like, oh, yeah, you know him. He's a drinker. He's a brawler. He's this performer. He's pissed that he didn't get to be top billing. He gets killed in a bar fight. Okay. Everyone pour one out for the homie. Um, (laughs) apparently he's buried in an unmarked grave. Why? They don't say. I just think it's suspicious. That's very suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Some people, though, think it's it's deeper than a fight about a billing. Well, I mean, it feels like it has to be, especially if he ends up getting buried in an unmarked plot. That feels weird. I mean, maybe because he was under suspicion for these anti, like, these atheist beliefs, they didn't want to. Didn't want to give him a Christian burial. But it says, it says unmarked grave, not that he was buried, like, outside on unholy ground. You know what I mean? Um, Some claim that this killing was a political assassination due to his secret agent status. Ding, 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 ding. Others claim that he faked his own death. Not again! To avoid the death penalty for atheism. That they claim that he fled to Italy and continued to smuggle plays back across the channel for years to come. As Shakespeare. That's interesting. Right? But Shakespeare and Marlowe knew each other. So that either adds to the theory, I think, or it can... Well, it might add to the theory in that... uh... Shakespeare was the one smuggling them back into England. Perhaps, but Shakespeare never left England. No, but he might have been the one who, like, put it on or produced it. Perhaps. I don't know. 
And just then a guess. my last main contender, which I find the most fascinating and is also a testament to how a well-constructed article can really just win the, win the day, <laughs> um, which I will actually scroll down and give you the specific one for this case. Um, again, all sources will be listed in the show notes. They always are. But most of my evidence is drawn from the following article in the atlantic which is was shakespeare a woman by elizabeth winkler and this was from 2019 i believe so basically all of the following information is from that article in the atlantic just to fully disclose that for me so her argument is that amelia bassano the daughter of venetian immigrants and a highly praised writer of religious themed texts of course because patriarchy she couldn't have really been allowed to write anything else publicly she argues that Bassano is the true Shakespeare and the reason that she argues that Shakespeare is a woman in general the a few of these points are general is that how could a man write such nuanced and liberated female characters such as Beatrice from Much Ado, Kate from Taming of the Shrew, Rosalind from As You Like It, the list goes on and on. So, like, how could an Elizabethan man be so open-minded as to think up these powerful female characters? As main characters, too. As, yes, as heroines. Okay. Um, similarly, how could a man conceive of such intimate and meaningful friendships between women? You see it across many of his plays. You have Beatrice and Hero in Much Ado, Juliet and her nurse in Romeo and Juliet, Amelia and Desdemona in Othello. The list, again, goes on and on, which I think is interesting that female friendship, I think, still to this day is still overlooked and is is looked not in some cases looked down upon or is seen as very frivolous um i mean you have the bechdel test which for a show or a movie to pass the bechdel test they have to have two named female characters who exchange i believe it's like three to five sentences of dialogue together that are not about a man and you would be shocked at the number of shows and movies that do not pass the bechdel test um so that's interesting Again, kind of in opposition to this, Shakespeare's will left no consideration for the education of his daughters, contrary to the powerful characters he supposedly wrote. So this is in opposition to the argument that Shakespeare was a woman. Or like, I guess in their argument, Shakespeare, the man, didn't write the plays because he didn't leave yeah. any educational considerations for his daughters versus the artistic mind of Shakespeare was a woman but obviously that woman wouldn't have control over the man Shakespeare's will my argument though is that not all authors practice what they preach J.K. Rowling wrote of a magical world where everyone is accepted as exactly as they are but she turned out to be a terrible turf so Anyway, I'm going to quote directly from the Atlantic article now. But just think of how obsessed the work, Shakespeare's work, is with mistaken identities, concealed women, forged and anonymous documents, with the error of trusting in outward appearances. Which I truly had not considered before. Me neither. But there is a lot of cross-dressing, a lot of mistaken identity, whether it's twins, whether it's women pretending to be men. It's just uh, very interesting, I, I think. I like it. It makes for, narratively, it's very intriguing, right? I think it's part of the reason we all love Shakespeare in Love, you know? Yeah. Gwen, Gwyneth Paltrow's character is pretending to be a boy, so then she can perform in, in a show. Um, and yet somehow keeps all her long hair underneath that one cap. You know, movie magic, that's what I have to say. But back to the evidence for Amelia Bassano. Variations on both her first and last names are found throughout Shakespeare's works. Um, there are several Amelias throughout his plays. Um, variations on her last name of Bassano show up in, like, I believe it's The Merchant of Venice. 
I didn't write it down. Um, but just interesting. Pro Shakespeare scholars would point to the fact of, well, they would know each other. Like she was, in, she was a patron of the arts. She was involved. She was around as much as she could be as a woman. So, you know, we don't look at every movie or every book and be like, oh my gosh, you know someone named Amy. So then this means that they're the one in the... Yeah. You know. And also like what names are popular and what names people, Precisely. you know, are liking. Because they would pay attention very close probably to like what's happening within the arts world and figure out who can I honor in this moment? Who can right. I write into this play that I'm writing? Yes. So Shakespeare's troupe did not perform in court at court until 1594. But several of his history plays had been written before then. And they seem to show an insider knowledge of the ins and outs of court. So that's an argument that they make that Shakespeare, the man, could not have written these because he he's just a commoner. He doesn't know anything about the politics. Hmm. And Bassano, however, through her lover, which I don't really love as a term, she was basically his teenage mistress. Like she was like 17, 18. He was like in his 40s. But through him, she had an inn at court and was apparently well-loved by the queen until she was thrown out of court in 1592 due to an illegitimate pregnancy. Uh, She gets married off, though. Like, that's her fault. Good lord. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Um, The patriarchy! Um, There's a soundbite. You're welcome. She does get married off, so she's like... Societally, she's okay, even though she's not in court anymore. But the argument is that she attended court during the time that several of the histories were written. Um, Another piece of evidence that they point to is that her family were suspected to be Jews posing as converted Christians. Once they immigrated into England, they were posing as Christians, obviously, because contrary views, as we talked about with Marlowe, not really appreciated no especially under elizabeth yes um so the reason that's important is that a midsummer night's dream draws from a passage in the talmud about marriage vows that's in the text and then uh in all's well's all's well that ends well spoken hebrew is mixed in with like the nonsense language that's included Mm. in the play so if shakespeare the common boy from Stratford-upon-Avon who is Christian, like, why would he know that is their argument. Um, In Bassano's book of poetry, she writes about men who wrongly take credit for knowledge. And I'm going to read you a quote. Yet men will boast of knowledge which he took from Eve's fair hand as from a learned book. Which I'm like... I feel like I need to snap. Ooh, <laughs> the shade. Um, or like, flash your fan. Like, yeah. It's from a learned book. Yeah. Fan flop. Um, which, okay. And then, that's kind of the conclusion of that, of those main contenders. Okay. Um, some historians propose variations on a group theory, but I won't be going into depth about that. That's just, what we learned. Just due to time. Um, But one concession that I will give is that theater is incredibly collaborative. So we will never know until time travel is invented if there were instances in rehearsals where Richard Burbage or Will Kemp or another actor ad-libbed a line that made the final cut. Do I think that the majority of a piece could be written like that? I really hope not because that sounds like the group project from hell. (laughs) Any playwriting MFA students, please write in and let us know. Um, So, the truth. (gasps) Shakespeare, quote unquote, was probably William Shakespeare. Aww. Because math. Ew. (laughs) That you didn't see that coming. Also, I feel like a clickbaity, like, BuzzFeed headline. (laughs) Like, Shakespeare is Shakespeare, cuz math. All right. Which I found this really interesting. Um, So in the late 1800s, a Polish philosopher 
and I wrote out the phonetics, but please forgive me if this is wrong. A Polish philosopher named Vincenti Lutosławski created stylometry, which is where you take character, not characters, characteristics of an author's body of work, such as sentence length, sentence structure, vocabulary, both the breadth of vocab and the frequency of certain words, and you essentially place them on graphs. I'm going to show this picture to Emma. We'll include it on the Instagram. But so you take, per, for instance, the usage of the word the compared to other vocabulary terms, okay. and you plot points based on each of the plays or of the works. And then you use something called principal component analysis, which is a cluster tool to measure the variance between the works. Um, so you group and you see, oh, the majority of him, the majority of his works use the 64 times, but they use the word glorious 20 times. And it kind of creates a cluster where the majority of his work lives lies. So it's kind of this, this snapshot through statistics of what his work looks like. That's fascinating but also terrifying <laughs> but then what's nice is that once you have that structure of what the shakespeare format is you can plug other playwrights or poets into in it. so you can see you know if we were to take all of the earl of oxford's writings and plug them in we could see if they really lined up or if he is all the way up here in a different field Hmm. Um, but what's helpful for this, while it shows that Shakespeare is Shakespeare, no one else really slots into his same, same framework, it can show us when collaborations will happen. So, for example, through this, we can tell that Shakespeare and our old friend Christopher Marlowe collabed like old school YouTubers on Henry VI parts one and two. Okay. So we're able to tell. That's really cool. Yeah. So... Did, bet you didn't think we were going to talk about math today. I didn't. Nope. As a wrap-up, I would love to hear, I know you kind of mentioned it earlier, but from a grad school, an English grad school perspective or undergrad, like, did you guys talk about it? Was it just scoffed upon to even consider it? What Was there any discussion about it? So in grad school specifically, I'll say, because that's where I tended to learn the most about Shakespeare. Because I remember in, like, high school and early, like, undergrad – I had like maybe one Shakespeare class and it never was really delved into in that sense. Um, but once I got to grad school, specifically when I was doing the class that was on early modern uh, books, um, we talked about the first folio. So there's a lot of very interesting stuff about the first folio. And I'm doing this from memory, so if I get some of this wrong, let me know. Um, and actually, Stephanie, you might know all of this more than I do, <laughs> but this is what I remember from it, because they had a, uh, a facsimile that they brought to the special collections for us to see of the first folio, which was beautiful, fascinating. But the professor who was teaching us, she used to be the head of the, like, Shakespeare, uh, I forget what it's called. It's basically the, the, uh convention that they always have with all like all of the new theories all of the new papers the Blackfriars. i don't know if it is i think i still have a t-shirt that says it on it <laughs> don't remember anyway she was like the president of it for a really long time so she's like a she's a true shakespearean scholar um and so when we were looking through it she was telling us that there was a very widespread theory within her group of cohorts that so the first folio was printed after Shakespeare died. Um, the collaboration, like the the collection of it, like of all of these plays, there are some missing that we now have as canon as, as Shakespeare's plays, um, but there were some missing from the first folio that ended up in the, in the quarto and all that. But the majority of those she had been researching and reading into that they were not necessarily all from his specific like writing like of of pieces of paper that had his name signed on it with all of the like play on that piece of paper 
there was a lot of it too that was actually taken from the play being done in front of someone or the actors writing down their own lines um, in order to write down the play for the folio. So the idea that there was a lot of like potential ad lib, that there was a lot of their own flair to certain words, certain phrases um, to make their characters specific uh, is very possible. But I find this, this plot point thing fascinating. I want to know if they've done anything, like if they've been able to put anything together of like Amelia's writings and like figure that out. Because I feel like there's a lot of factual stuff that we know about other people that seem to cling more towards or like lean more towards certain aspects of the actual content of the plays, even if the phrasings in the words and the structure of the sentences are particularly Shakespearean. So I find that fascinating. I've also heard um, the Amelia one before of the fact that, yeah, there's no way that he could possibly be writing such a strong female character with a strong female friend within the play. Um, and I've read a couple papers about that, but the majority of the scholars that I've read that are in, like that dip their toes in that also lean back into, well, what about in the, in the histories? What about in this and all of the minute, like even in Hamlet having Ophelia, is it Ophelia? Mm -hmm. It's Ophelia. Um, having Ophelia be almost like a, like it, she's a femme fatale, but like not in the boss way. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what the the best way to describe her is, but like, there's, there's a little bit of that too, where it's like, there's, they, they, it's very specific, which ones mm -hmm. women are chosen to be key points in. And even with the cross dressing, it is meant to attract or be secret from men, but, allow them to like kind of know right so like in much ado about nothing all of the like trickery trickery and hiding hiding behind clothing and like he couldn't possibly know that i am me even though i'm just wearing pants like <laughs> right so. well and it's it's i would be interested i didn't go into it for this but i would be interested to see which of the plays were like, when they went to court, which were already in existence and which yeah. were plays that were written once they started going to court. Because, in my mind, it makes sense to present to the queen, the first queen, like, yeah. a play with a strong, powerful woman. Because um, that would be acceptable and seen as complimentary. But, yeah, I... I don't know. I feel like we talked a little bit earlier about it. I think the people who claim that Shakespeare as a person didn't exist. The that level sounds of fathomable. That, like, there would be a faked baptism, a faked wedding, death paperwork, a literal grave. You have, to, you, know? you have to remember how expensive paper is at this point, too. Like, you don't just, like write things down on a scrap of paper and hope someone sees it. Like, there are log books that churches keep, and there are, like, bank books and all of that, but it's not It's not as if you as an individual can buy a piece of parchment and, like, use it for, like, your scrap notes. Like, that's not right. how it works. Also, the literacy level is very different at this time, too. So there's a little bit of that as well. Yes. So if any of this were to be real, which... I feel like the math, the stylometry, kind of eliminates that. But I will give the contrarians this small concession that because playwriting and poetry was looked down upon, we don't have plays by the Earl of Oxford or by Sir Francis Bacon or Amelia Bassano because they weren't allowed to. So it's not that we... You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Christopher Marlowe was a published playwright. We yeah. can take the works that have his name and put it into that framework and compare and see, oh, you did not write most of the things of Shakespeare, but you probably collaborated on these two plays. Yeah. 
So I, I can see them being like, well, your math is invalid because we can't compare, yeah. you know. Um, so I feel like, if anything, the idea that Willie Shakes was somebody's artistic beard while being a living, breathing, real-life actor is more likely than him, like, not existing at all. Yeah. And then my last point, which I think is a little more philosophical, is just why are people eager to believe that it's a conspiracy? I have my feeling about it, but I wonder if you have any thoughts. I think people just really like, or I guess dislike, the idea that, like, one person could possibly produce something as prolific as Shakespeare's works. Sonnets, plays, everything. So I think in their mind, they're like, one person couldn't... It's like the ancient aliens dudes being like, one person, or one, you know, country couldn't possibly have known how to make a pyramid. You know, slavery existed, so... Also, you're racist. Ba-da-da-da-da. Ding! Um, So, like, I, I genuinely think that's everyone's inclination initially, because it's... It's easier to believe that a secret noble was able to do this with all the benefits that they had from their status than a commoner with an eighth grade education. Yeah. Because if he could do that in those times with those resources, what are you what are you doing with your one single life? You know what I mean? Like you are just inadequate. We're making a podcast. We are. I'm not saying we're inadequate. <laughs> no, but I, know. I feel like But it's there there's that feeling for I'm sure there's there, that thought that there are people there. who who and I feel we both fall into this that bask in the in the existence of genius, mm-hmm. and then there are people who are so unwilling to confront their own lack of, you know, immortality in the way that Shakespeare died in sixteen sixteen, and we're still talking about him today. Joe Schmo from down the street is probably not going to achieve that level of you know Joe. <laughs> Of success. <laughs> Mr. Schmo. Mr. Schmo. Um, you know, like, I feel like yeah. it's easier to eliminate the magnitude of his of his success and his achievement because you know you will never compare. Yeah, and his proliferation. The, like, the fact that we still do his plays, that we do adaptations, that we are still talking about him at all. Oh, in terms of phrase that we use every day, you probably... chase. You don't even really... One. You don't even realize that our... Shakespearean. Yeah. I just remember all my English teachers had that poster. Yeah. It's like, things you say thanks to Shakespeare. Wild Goose Chase. Um, There was something else that it's very funny. Let me see. Because it might be about butts. Pull up the old Google. Sorry. About butts. (laughs) I think so. I don't remember. ASMR montage. Let's see. Let's check this article from BBC America. All right. We've got The Game is Afoot. As Good Luck Would Have It, Bated Breath, Brave New World, Break the Ice, Brevity is the Soul of Wit. Is this all alphabetical? Yes. <laughs> How many are there? Dead is a Door Now. Oh, it doesn't have a... Oh, this one's 45. Fancy Free, For Goodness Sake, you know? For Goodness Sake. Yeah. So we get For Goodness Sake. Thanks, Shakespeare. You're welcome. <laughs> The holidays are coming. Says Shakespeare from the grave. <laughs> You're welcome. I'll, I just I just appreciate him. And also, please know, when I was doing this research, I just kept picturing Christian Borrell as Shakespeare from Something's Rotten. Yep. Um, it's hard to be the bard. <laughs> Go Google it. Watch it on YouTube if you are interested. One of my friends is in the ensemble from the tour. Woo! Yeah. Did All right. Years ago. So just a quick little roundup of sources... The Washington Post, Inside Hook, The Atlantic, The Guardian, The Irish Times, uh, TED Ed on YouTube, like TED Talks, but the education (laughs) branch, the Francis Bacon Society, and the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship. Complete sources in the show notes. Thanks. Oop, the computer is closed. (laughs) That's it. That's very well done. Thank you. I loved it. Yeah. It was awesome. I mean, I feel... I feel that I started with an opinion and I'm ending with the same opinion, but I would love to see a movie with the, um, the, like, the woman element, Mm -hmm. which I feel like they kind of tried to give us with Shakespeare in Love, 
in that she was feeding him a lot of lines in their romantic relationship that he like ended up putting in the play. But I would love to see like an anonymous, but with, with it being Amelia Bassano or Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. I think it would be intriguing. That's assuming Queen Elizabeth was a woman. What? Huh? <laughs> There's so many things. So many things in this world that we don't know. But if you would like to see any of the photographs and the, the especially that little like plot point graph that you showed me, if you would like to see any of that, you can go and find them on our Instagram at this podcast doesn't exist without the apostrophe. And if you'd like to let us know what your conspiracy about Shakespeare is, if we're wrong, Stephanie, go ahead and tell us how we're wrong. Yes, please send us an email or a voice memo. We could always play it on the show. Yeah. Um, but if you're not Stephanie and you'd like to send us an email. Yes. Uh, we also accept messages from people other than our friend Stephanie, Shakespeare scholar. Uh, you can reach us at this podcast doesn't exist at gmail.com. And that's all we have for today, I think. That's good. Well, and just remember... This podcast doesn't exist.